Hello, and welcome to Little Gold Men, the award season podcast from Vanity Fair. It's such an honor to present this next award. And here are the nominees. And the Oscar goes to... And the Oscar goes to... And I can't deny the fact that you like me right now. You like me. I'm the king of the world. There's a mistake. Moonlight, you guys won Best Picture. I'm Katie Rich, the deputy editor of VanityFair.com, and I'm here by myself, but only for a little bit. I'm going to introduce uh, the two segments that are going to make up this week's episode as Richard heads off to the Venice Film Festival, and then we'll have the Telluride Film Festival, and then the Toronto Film Festival. It's all about to get started, but there's fun stuff to talk about in the meantime. First, we're going to have the latest and final installment of our Little Gold Men book club. We'll be talking about Donna Tartt's The Goldfinch, which is going to be a movie released in just a few weeks. And then after that, we're going to share an interview that I did with Luke Kirby, who plays Lenny Bruce on The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. He got nominated for his first Emmy for this past season, where Lenny Bruce kind of shows up the way he has the entire series. He flits in and out and has these interactions with Midge Maisel and flits back out, but the final episode ends on this really uh, lovely and emotional performance that the real Lenny Bruce did on the Steve Allen show. And he talked about recreating that performance and then also kind of what his version of Lenny Bruce is like and, and the pressure that comes with that. So we'll take a listen to all of those things and then we'll rejoin you next week with a lot more festival buzz. Well, we want to welcome everyone to the final installment of our Little Gold Men book club. It's been an extremely fun August talking about all of these books that are on their way to being movies. And uh, today we're discussing The Goldfinch, which is going to be out very soon as a movie with lots of big movie stars that we'll talk about. And joining me to talk about it, uh, Joanna Robinson back again. Welcome to the end of our book club, Joanna. I made it all the way to the end. <laughs> uh, and joining us again is Vanity Fair's editor-in-chief, Radhika Jones, dialing in from uh, the furthest reaches of New England, I believe. Hi, Radhika. Hello. And joining us again, but for the first time in the book club, is our senior editor, Hilary Busis, who uh, I thought of you immediately, Hilary, because I think you are a Goldfinch fan, right? I am. Well, I'm really excited that we got to bring you in for this because there is a ton of book to discuss. And um, we can just go through the basics. The book was published in 2013. It's by Donna Tartt. It was her first novel in 11 years. She is a very unprolific but very popular author. Uh, and it won the Pulitzer Prize in 2014, even as a lot of highbrow critics were, you know, saying it wasn't really highbrow enough or maybe wasn't quite literature the way that it ought to be. And it's now going to be a movie released by Warner Brothers, directed by John Carney, who made Brooklyn a few years ago with a very, very starry cast, including Nicole Kidman and Jeffrey Wright and Sarah Paulson and lots of other people. It, it's being kind of positioned as this massive movie of the fall, the way that I think it was positioned as this massive book. And Radhika, I think of you as kind of the book's expert, uh, particularly among the group of us, I think. Um, is your perspective that The Goldfinch was as big as I'm saying it was, and does that make this movie feel huge too? It was. I mean, I always felt... And I think I'm not alone that a Donna Tartt book is an event. Um, and in this case, it was much anticipated and it arrived like a big old doorstop. And uh, people had a, had some divisive opinions about it. But the truth is that just on the, the basis of her her plots and her sentences and her ability to draw a set piece, and of course I'm thinking of the beginning of this novel, she has really few peers in contemporary American literature, if you ask me. Her work is very exciting. It's uh, When I think about The Secret History, which came out when I was in college and, and is about a group of college kids um, who get up to some suspicious business, 
She she has this wonderful way of balancing page turner qualities with something that is more erudite, um, ideas that are more erudite. And I think that that tension is at play in The Goldfinch. It's a page turner in a lot of ways, but it it's very plot driven. But it also has to do with some kind of high flying ideas about art and authenticity and artifice and also theft and kind of who has the moral right to something that is immortal. It, it didn't disappoint it, just in terms of its scope and its vision. Um, and, the, and I think the movie kind of has some of that same expectation carried with it. Uh, Joanna, you had the suggestion of doing a kind of brief run-up of what the story is before we get into what you'd call spoilers, even though this book is several years old. Do you want to kind of give the rundown? Since you, you just read it for the first time, it's fresh in your brain. What's the goldfinch <laughs> about? <laughs> Wait, but before you do, having read it for the first time, Joanna, did you like it? I did like it. Yeah, yeah I really did. We on VF or in the magazine, I think, published uh, this great piece years ago when the, when the book came out called It's Tart, But Is It Art? And so like I knew that the goldfinch was sort of divisive in the literary world. And um, it's, it's one of those, you know, you have those thick books, or maybe even not so thick books that sit on your bedside and shame you because you haven't read them. That was the goldfinch to me. So it feels really like... Uh, feels freeing to have finished it. <laughs> and um, also, yeah, I, re- I really did like it a lot. So the goldfinch centers on Theo Decker, who is 13 years old when we meet him. And he and his mother at the Metropolitan Museum of Art when there is a terrorist attack. And um, a lot of people die, including his mother. And in the melee, I think I don't think this is a spoiler, he ends up walking away sort of confusedly with this priceless painting, small painting of a goldfinch, the titular goldfinch. And the painting is something that he, you know, accidentally, but then maybe intentionally holds on to for a long time as he's sort of tumbled around the world. Um, the adjective that is used to describe this book often is Dickensian. And so you can imagine that this lost boy tumbling through layers of society, different caretakers, some very bad caretakers, like out in Vegas, he lives a sort of like ragamuffin Oliver Twist life. And then, um, you know, permeates other levels of society, meets some great characters along the way. Is there more plot that I should be explaining? Develops a romantic (laughs) fascination with a young girl who was uh, also caught up in this explosion. Very um, great expectations. Yes. Yeah, her very, name is Pippa. In case yeah. uh, even even I could catch on to yeah. that, <laughs> having read very little Dickens. Perhaps in my life. not the most subtle nod. <laughs> <laughs> no. Well, I mean, then literally another character, you know, an, uh, one character describes, oh, he always reminded me of the Artful Dodger. And you're like, OK, at least she's like aware of sort of what she's doing here. Anyway, it's it's um, it's engrossing. Uh, it's expansive. And I think it does exactly as Radika says, it has some like higher minded things to say about art and possession and um that makes it an incredible read, uh, a very difficult thing, I imagine, to adapt into a feature-length film. So, <laughs> um, Hillary, on your reread for this, you were telling me how much you were enjoying it. What Was there anything that grabbed you on the second time around that maybe didn't hit you the first time or that you enjoyed more? Hmm, I don't know, actually. I think that actually rereading it, I was just struck again by how much I enjoyed the general like gestalt of the book, just the the overall impact of it. I mean, it's, as we've said, it's big, it's long, it's uh, it's dense, there's a lot of plot. Um, I can see why 
more literary mind than mine might pinpoint it as, you know, YA masquerading as a grown up book in as much as those two distinctions matter. Um, but, you know, that that stuff doesn't bother me. I was just completely absorbed. It was one of those, again, the second time around. Anytime I had to stop reading it, I was very impatient to be able to go back to it and just kind of lose myself in this world, which is uh, semi-contemporary, but also, as we were saying before we started recording, kind of a weird imagined New York and general society uh, that doesn't really make sense with the time period in which the book is supposed to take place. Uh, but that doesn't matter to me. I think that Donna Tartt, you know, builds her world enough that any anachronisms or weirdness or like the weird anglophilic uh, dialogue and stuff like that just seems to make sense uh, when you take it all together. So. Yeah, the way the Barber family talks and they all use, the Barber family being the, the wealthy family that um, Theo winds up with after his mother dies, um, they all just use these words that you can't ever imagine a 12-year-old or an 18-year-old using, but it does seem to fit in this rarefied Upper East Side world that they live in. I that- think at some point somebody is pushing a pram, which like that's not <laughs> something that's ever been said in New York City in the year 2002 or whatever we're supposed to be. But doesn't it just feel right for the way that the Barbers are established? Like they, they are also kind of unstuck from time? Oh yeah, completely. And I mean, that I think that that's also what works so well in the secret history, although there it's kind of depicted more that the group of friends, the center of the book, the classics club, um, like have consciously kind of removed themselves from society and created this very mannered, like mini culture of their own. And like the rest of the school is aware of it. But in this case, the entire world is like that. And I don't know. I was there for it. Um, Radhika, I wanted to maybe throw it back to you to talk about some of like the characters as they emerge in the book, and particularly Theo, who's at the center of the story, but as I was telling Joanna earlier, feels like one of the most passive characters in all of literature. Like he kind of skates along, he steals a painting in the beginning of the book and then kind of does nothing else and is pushed to do all the rest of everything else he does. He's very um, active about drug use. He's very active about drug use, which we can get into as well. Um, does that kind of stand with the Dickensian influence here? Does that feel like a choice that helps inform the rest of the novel? Or is it just like he makes a convenient kind of coat rack on which to put the rest of the story? Well, your question gets to the heart of what happens to orphans in 19th century novels. Are they able to express agency because they are parentless? Are they liberated in a way that children who have authority figures around them all the time are not? And Theo, I think, has a little bit of both. His taking of the painting is, of course, not exactly intentional, but his keeping of the painting is intentional. So it's like he has it both ways a little bit. And he's able to act on certain impulses that do change his life, like when he takes when he takes the first step to go down to the little antique and restoration store in Greenwich Village through a connection that he made at the at the blast site. So I feel like he he is maybe a little bit passive, but he also has gone through major trauma. And it might be churlish of us to expect him to behave any differently than that. What he is mm-hmm. is incredibly observant, and we rely on his powers of, obser- of observation, even about himself, um, but also really about the people who he's with. Like, like we see the barbers, for example, through his eyes, and they are about as real an Upper East Side family as I think you could get, and it's really delightful how much he notices. So I think that if we expect him to act in certain ways... 
maybe we're disappointed, but if we expect him to observe and be thoughtful about his surroundings, then I would, I would say at least I'm not disappointed. Yeah, and particularly the way I think he also writes about his mother, who dies very early on in the book, but recurs throughout it and kind of like comes alive as this fully realized character. And uh, it's another thing that you, t- you talk about how perceptive and descriptive he is, and a movie won't have any of that. Like, I imagine there might be some voiceover, but so much of that is going to have to be conveyed visually. And I'm really curious about how any filmmaker could manage to capture so much of what Theo says and observes about these people that's so insightful. Yeah, it'll be hard because there's something also, he's precocious, right, in that way. Like, he's 13 when all of that happens, and he he has a lot to take in. And it can be hard for a young actor to convey everything that's going on beneath the surface um, at, at that age and in that kind of life moment. Well, what's interesting, I've been thinking about this because Theo is, of course, like a very interior character. And not only that, but um, there's a whole stretch of the novel that is illuminated by another character. He's like slightly unreliable, too, because there's a whole stretch. The Vegas stretch of the novel is like sort of somewhat told again from a different point of view from another character later. And that, you know, I'm I'm so curious if they're going to even try to do that, try to highlight something we've already seen from a different point of view. But I've been thinking about Theo as an interior, somewhat inert, and not that I judge him uh, for that, given what he went through, but character and how, how you make that dynamic on the screen. Ansel Elgort is a character, like, I think he played a similarly passive character, passive-seeming-ish in Baby Driver, and that didn't really work for me, so I'm a little concerned about that. But on the... What the, sh- what the film has going in its favor, just in terms of my expectations, um, is John Carney, who who did something similar with the central figure in Brooklyn, another very interior character. But in that case, of course, he had Saoirse Ronan, you know, there able to draw us inside of her, um, even as she was, so, you know, somewhat folded in on herself, uh, if that makes any sense. And so I, I worry about... Ansel Elgort, who is like a, an appealing figure, but I'm not sure he has that same interior quality uh, drawing us into Theo's adventures in the cold. And Katie, actually, you you asked earlier um, what kind of struck me on the second read of the book. And the thing that I did find myself thinking actually was um, as I was reading, I was like, wait, who's Nicole Kidman playing again? And then I looked up the movie and saw that she's playing Mrs. Barber, which honestly feels like a strange choice because... I was I was surprised going back, seeing how long he's with the Barbers. I forgot that that section is as lengthy as it is. I kind of, in my mind, had it that he, you know, his mom dies and then he goes straight to Vegas. Um, if mm-hmm. we are now getting into the more plotty part of our discussion. Sure. Um, yeah, I think I think that's safe to do at this point. Cool. Um, and so, yeah, uh, casting Nicole Kidman in this part seems like, I mean, unless it's a true supporting role where she's really only in a couple of scenes, like that is when you look at the Goldfinch, that section seems like kind of the most expendable, I guess, in the grand scheme of the book. And there is so much plot that I honestly do not understand how this could possibly be even a long movie, even like a two and a half hour movie. It seems built for more of like the miniseries treatment. Um, Mm -hmm. So I'm super curious about how much she, how much she's going to play into the action. Um, whether they're going to spend a lot of time with the barbers, whether it's going to be kind of sped through as I would think you would if you were adapting this. This year, I'm going to eat better and spend less time and money at the grocery store thanks to ButcherBox. ButcherBox is the meat delivery subscription that gives me more time for what matters most. 
Each month, they send a box of the highest quality meats for a better price in the grocery store, which gives me more time to spend cooking and sharing delicious meals with friends and family. Each month, ButcherBox ships a curated selection of high-quality meat right to my home. All meat is free of antibiotics and hormones. Each box has 9 to 11 pounds of meat, which is enough for 24 individual meals. It's packed fresh and shipped frozen and vacuum-sealed so that it always stays that way. I can customize my box or go with one of theirs. Either way, I get exactly what I want. ButcherBox is really the most affordable and convenient way to get healthy, humanely raised meat. With ButcherBox, you get the highest quality meat for just about $6 a meal. And they even have free shipping nationwide, except for Alaska and Hawaii. So start your year off right with up to 10 pounds of free meat. For a limited time, ButcherBox is offering new members their ultimate keto bundle when you sign up today. That includes one pork butt, two pounds of ground beef, and three pounds of bone-in chicken thighs for free in the first box by going to butcherbox.com slash cadence. That's butcherbox.com slash cadence. Yeah, because when you think about what the, the book is about, as we were talking about at the beginning, about like art and you know theft and who has the right to certain things, the barbers are part of that, but they're not really essential to it the way that Boris is or Hobie is or you know the, the kind of action-filled stuff at the end with them actually trying to recover this painting that's been bopping around forever. Yeah, there's um, sort of more atmosphere. Yeah, and I think it's important to get to that part of it, and I really like that part of it. Like, I think my favorite parts of the book are all the upper crust New York stuff, um, but I, I agree that it does feel expendable, although it's just, it's so hard to kind of wrap your mind around, like, are they going to get rid of giant chunks of it? Are they just going to, like, speed through it? What's the what's the actual solution to condensing this massive book? Well, I do remember on my first read of it thinking that it there were places where uh, far be it for me to judge, but where where some compression might have been in order. And it, it's kind of interesting <laughs> in, in this era of limited series. And, you know, like there are a lot of different storytelling options for longer stories now, which is, which is an amazing development. Um, so it's almost like a throwback to me to, to have this particular book being made into a feature film with all of the constraints that that form will put on it. But I think it's really an artistic challenge and it will be interesting. It will feel very different from the book. Yeah. I just wish that if we were going to get three seasons of 13 Reasons Why, we could get more than one movie of <laughs> Cold Finch. Well, exactly. Uh, can I talk about the Vegas section of the book a little bit? Because that was the biggest difference for me on rereading. And I think it's entirely because when I read it for the first time uh, as a, you know, uh, someone who in high school was pretty uh, restrained and not, had no interest in drugs, it stressed me out greatly that they <laughs> were just doing endless drugs. And I was convinced that one or both of them was going to die because there are many moments in the book where they behave irresponsibly enough that they probably should have. Um, and then reading it again and knowing that wasn't going to happen, I was able to appreciate it a little bit more while also thinking, oh my God. God, how are like looking at how they have cast Theo and Boris, who are 13 in the book and look about 13 in the trailers, like they just can't do that many drugs, right? Like it's th that's not gonna work. <laughs> I mean, if they if they soft pedal that, I think there will be a lot of outcry from the book readers. Oh, you know I'm, what I mean? <laughs> oh. You can maybe you can montage it in the age of euphoria, Katie. Um, oh I think, no, I all think parents will just like <laughs> crawl out of the theater dead. The, the character of Boris to me is is a problem only insofar as he's so 
dynamic on the page that that for me I really feel his lost whenever he goes away like you don't know what you're missing until he shows up and then whenever he goes away you're like when is Boris coming back or at least that was my response to it and so once again looking at the actors who they've cast as young and old Boris are actors who I've seen in other things who are perfectly fine but I'm like can you capture that spark that just sort of for me at least pours off the page with this character it's potentially potentially they will have there's very little spoken like I don't know if uh, how well Finn Wolfhard's like Russian accent will be we'll see but like that's a character that I'm like I feel like it's a make or break for the goldfinch because he really is propulsive um in in whenever he enters the scene and he's also pretty cartoony I mean I I worry that this that he could be make or break in that way too that you know if his accent is super you know Rocky and Bullwinkle that right. it's going to take people out of the story. Yeah, I definitely had parts of reading the book, especially the first time, when I kind of assumed that he was lying about so much of the stuff that he'd done in his life, and eventually it becomes clear, like, no, he's just lived this truly insane life, and movies are so literal in that way that it might it might feel strange. I don't, and I don't mean to say that, like, having met some Ukrainians, um, I can speak for all, but um, I lived <laughs> I lived with a Ukrainian for a couple of years, and all of his friends' names were Alex, and they all had these, like, crazy stories that did involve, like, so much vodka and, and cocaine and, like, all this sort of stuff. And so, like, Boris feels very familiar to me, uh, to at least the, some of you, obviously, not all, hashtag not all Ukrainians, but, like, some of the Ukrainians <laughs> that I've met. And um, uh, that familiarity, I think, really was joyous for me. For you, Katie, I know that your big uh, love of this book centers on the character of Hobie, and I was wondering if you could talk about that, what he means to you, and and what you're looking forward to in the film about Well, that. I was just so excited that Jeffrey Wright was cast as Hobie, which is like, he's not really anything like he, the way he's physically described in the book, but I think his essence of, he has this this uh, capacity of conveying goodness and gentleness and like thoughtfulness that I think is so essential to who Hobie is. And you can just absolutely imagine Jeffrey Wright in like corduroy pants, puttering around a workshop and fixing furniture and talking about art and music and, you know, taking in orphans like with Pippa and with Theo and, and caring for them. And in all the glimpses of him in the trailer, you just kind of feel that emanating off of him. And I guess like for, yeah, the part of me that like gets stressed out seeing kids do drugs, like every time you come back to Hobie as this home base and someone who is going to care for Theo and even though Theo does pretty horrible things and really puts Hobie's career at risk but kind of comes around to understand it in the end I like that I just like the vibe of being in this place it's like a you know rainy Sunday afternoon and if the movie can capture some of that, that feels like something that is really evocative in the book but but a movie could really be equipped to get across especially with Jeffrey Wright in that part yeah I agree the drug use also stressed me out. I remember when I read it the first time. But now, as I think about it and as I hear you talk about it, it strikes me that that is one of the things that keeps the book from becoming sentimental. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and it'll be interesting to see whether the movie embraces that or whether sentimentality is a better register for a film. Oh, yeah. And speaking of sentimentality, uh, we should talk about Pippa because on rereading, that is also a storyline that I think... Uh, did not work for me in in a way mm -hmm. that I that I didn't really feel the first time around. I mean, so Theo is obsessed throughout basically his adolescence and into his adulthood with Pippa, um, who is the niece of the man that he encounters when like right after the blast in the Met, um, and their lives end up being sort of intertwined for the rest of the book. And you know, he's in love with her. She doesn't return his affection, um, but it's not even 
really a great expectation situation where she's kind of like toying with him. And I mean, it just their entire relationship is just him pining and her being oblivious and not really seeing him as anything more than like, you know, a guy that she sees sometimes. And I don't Mm -hmm. I don't know, like that on the page just comes across as as pretty pathetic in a lot of ways. And I don't know if the movie is going to try to kind of build them into this bigger romance, um, which I just I just I don't know. It just it doesn't seem like it's going to work. Can I just say that when I reading it for the first time, I was like, this is a dynamic that we used to be see often and now we consider slightly problematic is this like young man who maybe feels entitled somewhat uh, to the object of his affection. Yeah, Something she's I very like. much an object. In yeah, and so absolutely. Like if Donna Tartt wanted to give us a full picture of Pippa, she failed. In fact, I think like most of the women in the book don't get a fully sketched out, uh, you know, personality. Perhaps I would Zandra stick up the for, most. I was about to say, I'd stick up for Zandra, but everyone <laughs> Zandra, else. but and like, Mrs. you know, some, maybe Mrs. Barbara a bit, but as you say, she's sort of like ethereal floating in the background, but like Kitsy and Pippa specifically, I'm just like, I, you know, if a man wrote this, I'd be like, ugh. and then with Donna, I'm like, uh, okay, Donna, like, I don't know if it, maybe, maybe that's the point. Maybe it, there's supposed to be just other objects that Theo is pursuing and collecting and stuff like that. But something that I do like that at the very least Theo is self-aware enough to continually, judge and mock his own obsessions with Pippa. That's something that I valued in the book. And then it it doesn't end with him like getting the girl, you know, he might, he may, it may happen. He's on a better path, but um, you know, it's not about like him coming to uh, some sort of revelation or point of health so that he deserves her. It's, she's not the prize he wins at the end. Um, yeah, that's that, definitely a redemptive aspect of that yeah. whole plot line. And, and yeah, there is a meta awareness uh, the entire time where he's like thinking to himself that he knows he's being ridiculous and he can't snap out of it, which, you know, given his history of addiction and everything makes sense. Um, at the same time reading it, I was just like, oh my God, get over it. <laughs> <laughs> it's weird to think of something that was published in 2013 as aging, but I think, Joanna, as you pointed out, this this plot line of someone, uh, of a man pining after a girl who doesn't return his affections does feel different now than it might have six years ago. Um, and she she features into the trailer, so it's kind of hard. Like, you know, you know that she'll be in there, but I can't imagine, like, they're not going to change the book, but, like, not leaning on that so hard to the point that, that Theo drives you crazy the way that he might when you reread the book. But I think maybe the smartest thing to do is like to put as little emphasis on um, Pippa and Kitsy as possible and, you know, make it more about Boris. Boris is the real love story of the book for as, you know, problematic as that becomes in its own way, too. Absolutely. When they they share like a young adolescent kiss um, and, and not even like just just that feels like no, not even the kiss. It's like it's the unspoken. I love you at that moment. And it's like, but I didn't even need to say it because he knew it and I knew it and all that. And, you know, whatever, however you want to sort of box that love. Um, it is, I think, the the most potent um, emotion that that goes through the book. And that's exactly me. what Radika was saying about uh, sentimentality, too, is that you get to the end of them having all this horrifying behavior and then you realize at the end it's a love story. It, it is it is a very nice way to balance that sentiment. And it's also a love story about Theo and the painting, specific, like specifically yeah. the thread that goes through the whole thing. Yeah. My, um, my big frustration with this novel, which is not its fault, is that I just want to see the painting <laughs> over and over again. And I'm like, and pages and hundreds of pages will go by and you're like, where is the painting? Where is the painting? I haven't seen the painting in a while. Um, and so I, I'm curious if it will have that talismanic 
impact on screen. I imagine it will. It is like the little bird beating heart of the whole enterprise. And I'm excited to see that. I would love to talk to the art historian or painter who presumably recreated the painting to feature in the movie, like what they had to do. This is this. Let's assign this and run it before this before this <laughs> air. So I sound really smart for having come up with this idea. Um, is there any other casting or, or other characters that we want to talk about and what we what we're hoping to see on screen? Uh, I think we had we talked about this before we started recording, but I think Luke Wilson as his dad is something I'm really excited to see because the sort of like affable, hey buddy, like charming sort of thing that um, his dad does sometimes, you can see Luke Wilson doing easily, but the turn on his dad is something I'm really excited to see Luke do because I think usually Luke plays a good guy. Um, I don't, I can't think of you know, uh, one where he's played like an out and out sort of villain. And so I'm, I'm interested to see him tackle that. I think that's really good casting. Yeah, definitely. And uh, him acting against uh, Sarah Paulson as Sandra, his girlfriend um, is going to be really fun to see like her in that kind of like trashy, but wise mode, I think is going to be totally in her wheelhouse and she's going to really uh, knock it out of the park. Well, that's what's so satisfying about this. And then Nicole Kim in part two, it's like this movie was so big and the book was so big that they were like, who's the best actor we can get for every single one of these roles? And they got them. Although I have my questions about Ansel Elgort, I will say. Yes. I don't know. I don't know if, you know, he did kind of have a actually I feel like this role is maybe even sort of similar to the fault his his main part in uh, The Fault in Our Stars, where he's he's going to be tasked with bringing this kind of, you know, very like not literary necessarily, but very like uh, self-consciously literary dialogue onto a screen. And I think that in The Fault in Our Stars, I mean, I understand that movie was a big hit and, you know, everybody, all teenage girls swooned for him. Um, but, you know, John Green's dialogue uh, is like very like self-conscious and very like kind of mannered. And I think that there's going to be a touch of that in this too. And I feel like it's tough to pull off. I'm not totally sure if he has the linguistic dexterity that the part will require, especially if he's doing a lot of narration. So I'm a little wait and see about him, I will say. I'm feeling optimistic. But I'm going to stick up for Ansel. I feel like he's like, <laughs> he, he suits the look of the character as I imagine him in the book. I think he and the, the kid Oaks are really like well cast alongside each other. Um, and I feel like some of that aspect of being someone who's like kind of blown off their course and trying to find their way into it. I, I can see him pulling that off. Mm -hmm. And I, I do want to talk about Oaks Fegley. Like, I don't know um, exactly how they're going to divide the film, but the book is like, half and half, you know, mm -hmm. uh, kid and adult. And so Oaks Feigley uh, was in one of my favorite movies of like the past few years, Pete's Dragon. He's incredible in that movie. He's a really, really good uh, kid actor. And so I, I'm like really happy to see him uh, in this role. And also, by the way, the Feigley acting family, something I discovered this weekend at D23 because his brother is in this like, anyway, there's a whole Feigley family. They all have <laughs> fun and eccentric first names. Is this a TV show and in Disney Plus? <laughs> um, the it should be the Fagley family. The Fagley family, yeah. Anyway, um, yeah. So Oaks Fagley, like he is a lot to carry, and especially as you say that, like you know, the, one of the most arresting shots from the trailer, and they're using it as the poster imagery, is this shot of him like shirtless in his jeans, just sort of jumping into a pool, like looking like a lost boy ragamuffin, um, which you know he is a lost boy ragamuffin in Pete's Dragon, and um, I, I think that could be really incredible. And like once again. Brooklyn seemed like almost an unadaptable novel to me. And, mm -hmm. and what John Carney did with that, how much 
emotion he just like pulled right out of me watching that film. And I can't even to describe to people why Brooklyn has that effect, though Though I know it's had that effect on many people, because you try to describe it, you're like, it seems sedate when you think about it. But when you watch it, or at least when I watched it, I just felt so much overwhelming emotion. And so I'm excited to see if that's something that like a trick he can he can repeat here. Uh, Radhika, I know you have to go. So uh, maybe just like w- when you see the goldfinch, um, what will be what will be the, the first thing that you look for to uh, that, you know, you're interested to see actually exists on screen? The extended opening scene of this novel, the set piece, everything leading up to that explosion and how that how that all transpires is one of the most virtuosic. And it's, it's very theatrical. Um, it's cinematic. It's one of the most virtuosic openings um, of a novel, I think, in the last couple of decades. So ever since I read it, I've been wanting to see it. And that's what I'm most excited for is to see it. That sounds good. Um, okay, Hillary, how about you? What's the scene that you want to make sure that they keep and bring to life? Um, it's pretty hard to argue with, uh, with the explosion, but I think, uh, I think the introduction of Hobie, I'm very excited about when he has, he, you know, goes on this very like fairy tale esque quest to find him. And he goes to this, you know, mysterious little shop and rings on the doorbell and everything. I can see that being very magical. Um, so I'm excited to see that, I think. Joanne, I'll throw it to you and then I'll, I'll close it. Um, I think I, there's already a, a snippet of it in one of the trailers, but I think that, once again, that frantic goodbye between Boris and Theo in Vegas, that whole thing was so emotional and agitated, and um, I would I would love to see it uh, come through in that same sort of really felt way. Oh, and screen. I hope that Popper makes it. Oh, I was just going to say that. Oh, Pop chick. I know that that dog is like that dog in the painting were weirdly like the the consistent through lines through the whole book. And uh, they both belong. Let's actually see a Goldfinch movie from Popper's perspective. (laughs) (laughs) It was all great for Popper. He went on an adventure and then he got to live his life in this great West Village apartment. I just want to say one thing. We the kind of one big actor we haven't mentioned is Dennis O'Hare, who's playing this sort of minor character, Lucian Reeve, but it's just like the most perfect casting for this kind of sharky, uh, maybe not quite on the level antiques dealer. Uh, and there's a snippet of a scene between him and Theo in this restaurant uh, that is really wonderfully tense in the book and kind of leads to the entire plot of the back half. And I just like I feel like Dennis O'Hare could really nail it in his handful of scenes. Yeah, I was I was uh, really excited to see that casting. Yeah, yeah. I care more about that character knowing that Dennis O'Hare is playing him. Yeah, I think I feel like that's how a lot of this works. Is you see the cast and you're like, okay, like Xandra could really go badly on screen, but with Sarah Paulson, like you know that she's gonna like nail it. She nails literally everything she does. Um, well, The Goldfinch is out September 13th. It's going to be premiering at the Toronto Film Festival in like a week. So we'll kind of get the the verdict on that really soon. And then everyone will be able to see it. And in the meantime, if you start now, maybe you can finish The Goldfinch before the movie comes out. Joanna, you're a, you're a true life inspiration for finishing a massive book. You're the wind beneath my Goldfinch wings, Katie Rich. <laughs> so. You can totally um, finish it. But September 13th? Come on. What are you it's, doing? It's what like else do you have in your life? Now. Yeah. Bring it to the beach. It's definitely (laughs) portable. (laughs) Um, Well, Radhika had to go, but we want to thank Radhika for joining us again. Uh, And Hillary, you're going to be leaving us to go on maternity leave uh, pretty soon. So uh, this might be the last time you're on the podcast for a while. So thanks. Uh, I hope that you get lots of fun reading done uh, while you're holding your baby. Yes, I understand that you have a lot of free time right after you've had a baby. So that's when I plan (laughs) to catch up. (laughs) 
This is your second season, Mrs. Maisel, uh, but the first Emmy nomination, and I think you showed up more on this season than the last one. Did you have a sense, maybe going into it or when the show came out, that this might be a more visible season for you? Not especially. I mean, I had a sense after the first season, Dan and Amy kind of whispered in my ear to make me nervous. <laughs> um, but I didn't know going in, you know, when we did the pilot, I sort of thought it was probably just a one-off. And I've heard rumors that that is the case. I don't, I don't know if that's true or not, but I've heard that it was sort of, that was the idea that it was just going to be a one-off. And then because of some uh, clerical error, they decided to keep bringing me in. <laughs> and you just kept showing up until they told you to leave. Yes, exactly. Oh, is that how it works? Damn it. <laughs> yeah, I think so. Wish somebody had told me that sooner. Um, well, when in the very beginning when they brought this to you and they tell you, you know, this is not a show about Lenny Bruce, but you are going to, you know, we're bringing you in to play this incredibly famous comedian. Like, it, does it take some of the pressure off knowing that it's more of a supporting role or is it still as hard as if you were like starring in a Lenny Bruce biopic? Um, it probably takes some of, you know, it takes the, uh, because of the glare of, critique around history and, you know, the potential for revisionism and being accused of that and what is it for and what is its value, knowing that we weren't sort of trying to adhere to anything specific to dates and years mm -hmm. definitely lifted some of the uh, obsession. But I, I have to say, kind of getting more into it, I just, by virtue of being this way, started to obsess over and continually have come to Amy and said, well, you know, at this time, it hasn't, you know, she just say, forget it, leave it, you know. Because <laughs> it is more of, it's a broad brush stroke of a character than a, whatever the opposite of the broad brush stroke is. Sure. So, so there's stuff that maybe he's doing, or he's in New York when he wouldn't have been in New York, or, or stuff like that. You're kind of able to play a little fast and loose with the history. Exactly, exactly. And he, so he instead shows up in a more of a fable-like way, like a kind of almost like an energy or, a, you know, I think of it as like a fairy godmother mm -hmm. sort of, you know, comes in through some interdimensional door. <laughs> they have their little, they have their little thing. And then he blows back into whatever reality he's in. Yeah. But it does seem clear that you did a lot of work on the mannerisms and the way of speaking and, and some, you know, actual, of his actual comedy lines. So even if this is a fantasy version of him, it, it seems pretty true to life. Yeah. Uh, well, thank you. I, 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 uh, I wanted it to have some kind of essence, right? I mean, he was a real person. My biggest concern going in was, you know, how people who knew him who are still around might mm -hmm. feel. You know, you're not going to please everybody. But definitely um, wanted to, you know, kind of, I guess, honor a person who clearly uh, uh, loved other people and, and not to tamper with that. I met Kitty Bruce on last season. She came to set. Wow. It, uh, it was nice to have her sort of support the work, you know, it, it, it kind of cushioned, uh, my biggest fear. Yeah. Did you, did you do anything to kind of prepare for that moment? I mean, if she comes up to you and says that you got it all wrong, how do you even think? <laughs> Yeah, exactly. No, they sort of sprung it on me that she was there. And then <laughs> <laughs> I, I just sort of, you know, went with it. But she was really kind and generous. And, and, uh, and uh, yeah, I was just happy she didn't, you know, spit on me. <laughs> Have you heard from other people who remember this era of stand-up? Like you're saying, like, there are a lot of people who knew Lenny Bruce and, you know, performed in this way who are still around. 
Yeah, occasionally we'll hear from people who were around, or you know, definitely from fans of Lenny Bruce. Uh, some some comedians have come forward uh, espousing the the virtues of it. You get to the end of the season, and um, it's not just that, like, you're performing in this final episode, you're performing this real appearance that you can look up on YouTube, him doing the actual, like, So Alone song. But, you know, you're singing, you're this, this vulnerability moment. Like, did that feel like you kind of had to work your way up to that? Did, that? did that feel like kind of the most work you'd had to do to embody him at that point? Yes, because it was so specific to, you know, there is the facsimile aspect of, of doing something that's already been done. And kind of wanting to, you know, it was a fun exercise to get to try to adhere to all of the choreography that's there. Yeah. Um, I actually switched the, I sort of flipped the screen so I could watch it like a mirror. Oh, so you could like uh, like a mirror exercise in acting class. Yeah, because otherwise I was just sort of looking at it and going like, oh, wait, no, that's his left hand that's moving. And that, you know, it was sort of confusing <laughs> me. Uh, yeah. <laughs> it's so stupid. But... Um, but then, you know, to kind of take it a little bit further, you know, with, with where is Lenny at? Where was Lenny Bruce at when he wrote the song? I think that he and uh, Honey had split, you know, so there's a, a, a big uh, degree of truth to what Lenny said. And I've actually always been fond of that, that Steve Allen clip. I was sort of amazed the first time I saw it. I thought he was like, I, was like, I had no idea that Lenny was su- such a, a Jacques Brel, you know, mm-hmm. like he had this as- whole other aspect and it was, it's such an emotional thing to watch and you can really feel his sorrow about it and his kind of, uh, you know, having cast the die of regret into his life about, you know, losing a person like that. I, I, I think it's really a magical uh, piece. Did you have a did you have stand up comedy like had you followed it before all of this came to you? You've been an actor for a long time, but I know that doesn't always you know overlap with stand up. Yeah, yeah. No, I'm not. I mean, I, I haven't definitely never practiced it. I've I've gone to see it a few times. It always is really super nerve wracking because yeah. of you know they're going to talk about me and they're all going to laugh. <laughs> you know, which is what has happened every time. In fact, I just went last week to some stand up and I got. Picked on excessively. Oh, really? <laughs> it felt that way, you know. Was it? Did the person know that you played Lenny Bruce on television, or was this by chance? No, it was just by chance. I just I, I went with my wife and nephew to see some stand up, and uh, you know that she just zoned in on me. It was fun. <laughs> it, wasn't, it, didn't, it wasn't horrible. You have that vibe about you. Yeah, I guess. Yeah, exactly. The glow of shame. <laughs> When you're doing his bits on set or you're performing like on stage, are you trying to get laughs from the people who are there watching it? Or is that impossible because you're doing multiple takes and the energy is so different from if you were actually doing stand-up? It's really hard to go for rhythm that way. Mm-hmm. Um, just because, you know, it's unpredictable. Sometimes you're doing takes with no laughter, which is the most absurd thing to do. <laughs> Uh, especially after having done like five takes where everyone is laughing. Mm -hmm. The casting directors find the best actors to do background and be at these clubs because they, I've I've watched them sit there for 12 hours straight smoking these wretched herbal cigarettes and, you know, drinking this kind of crummy syrupy water and 
you know, in the guise of scotch or whatever, and they just like take after take, sit there with their eyes on you and listen and laugh at this material. And it's really, it's a marvel to kind of behold the work they're doing. And, then, and it makes it easier in the moments where you are going for laughter. You can't really lean into it like it's actual standard. Yeah, cause, I mean, I guess it ruins the take, if anything. Like, if anything happens unpredictable, it's, uh, you, you got to do it right. Yeah, when they do, like, yeah, when they do closer, you know, close-ups or whatever, then, then they have to ask everyone to be quiet, and it's the most bizarre thing because they <laughs> sort of sit there stone-faced. Yeah, acting's and, a weird uh, thing, man. Yeah, it feels, <laughs> feels like a nightmare. It is a weird thing. <laughs> but, you know, it's the journey. Is it a funny thing for you? I mean, you've done a lot of television work and kind of like, you know, done, you know, guest roles on the shows. But, you know, you're part of this show. You're back for season three, I believe. But, you know, I don't know when you've met Tony Shalhoub. Like, you're not in the same room together. Is is it funny to be kind of like on the show, but also in your own universe? Yes, definitely. I don't think that it's entirely the, the wrong place for me to be. In fact, I think it's probably correct. But <laughs> given... <laughs> given my attributes and, and traits, <laughs> that sort of, you know, seems appropriate. Uh, but yeah, it is, it is a little peculiar. But I do get to hang out with the other cast occasionally. They've been so generous with including me at sort of, you know, dinners and, you know, the, the odd award show that um, I've gotten, you know, some good timing with everyone. So when the show's in production, like, aren't all on set at the same time, like, there, there's some unity there. Yes, exactly. And, and, and also, I don't know if you've heard of, about the storied table reads that Amy Sherman Palladino throws. I can only imagine. They're really remarkable events, and, uh, yeah, I'm always excited to be invited to them because it means a, a, a really nice free meal and a really special <laughs> sort of signature cup of coffee and... Yeah. Is is it you know, the food that makes them with, remarkable? With some or? flowers. Yeah. It's the the whole setup. It's that you know it, it's it, it's made to sort of feel like a wedding, and uh, everyone from you know every department shows up. You know all the crew shows up. It's it's a room full of hundreds of people. We sit around at a table and we read the script, and it's really fun. I mean the the biggest lesson you mentioned, Tony. He's the best table reader that I've ever watched. He delivers every time like he's already on set and it's such a lesson in how to approach the work you know you know we this podcast is about award season so sometimes we take it more seriously than the people who are nominated for these things but but what was that feeling kind of going in thinking it might happen and then uh, finding out you got nominated yeah i kind of tried to ignore it as best as i could when you know when there was sort of grumbles or whispers around it <laughs> <laughs> you know it felt really good when i got the call yeah. It was really, it, it was a sort of, a, it was a really, uh, made for a very charmed Tuesday, you know? What's your plan for, because uh, this is at the uh, the Creative Arts Emmys, right? So it'll be the week before the, yeah, the, yeah, so you'll be there. That's the plan. I mean, you know, unless someone has a better offer, <laughs> I am going to be there with bells on and banners snapping in the wind. I'm going, you know. That does it for this week's episode. Find us and all of our coverage of the Venice and Telluride Film Festivals, and soon to be TIFF, and much more at VanityFair.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at LittleGoldMen. This episode was edited and produced by Brett Fuchs.